Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. So welcome to the BJA Education. My name is Benj Marriage. So it's wonderful to be joined today all the way from Christchurch in New Zealand by consultant anaesthetist Dr Wayne Morris to discuss his article Pain Management in Low and Middle Income Countries that will appear in the September 18 edition of BJA Education. Wayne is heavily involved with the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. He joins us for this podcast as a current Director of Programmes. He is a Board and Council Member of the WFSA and has previously chaired their Education Committee, during which time he co-authored the Essential Pain Management course that we shall hear about soon. So Wayne, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much, Benj. It's a, it's a pleasure to be taking part in this podcast. So I thought we'd start with a definition. Um, we have low and middle income countries, um, and middle income is subdivided into a lower and upper tier. But collectively, they're defined by the World Bank as those countries that have a gross national income per capita of less than around 12,000 US dollars, which is just over 9,000 pounds at today's exchange rate. And low income is defined as less than $995 or £750. So those are the thresholds and countries that we're talking about. And anaesthetic practice in these countries may well be out of the usual scope of practice of most UK anaesthetists. But the combination of emerging global health partnership programmes and more locally opportunities for trainees to be involved through out-of-programme fellowships, more and more of us will have exposure to working in these environments during our career. And I also think it's important that we use this podcast to break out of the everyday silos that we work in at our local trusts so that we can have a good appreciation of where our specialty sits on a global scale. Um, So maybe to start with, uh, Wayne, for our listeners who may have had no experience of working in this environment, could you outline the broad problem that is pain management in low and middle income countries, please? Well, Benj, I think um, um, pain management or inadequate pain management is is really a, a huge global problem. And the WHO estimates that 5.5 billion out of the world's 7 billion people uh, don't have access to treatments for moderate and severe pain. And that's over 80% of the world's population. So it's it's an incredible number. And most of these people live in low and middle income countries. There are many causes for this pain, so examples would be trauma, childbirth, arthritis, back pain, cancer pain, diabetic pain and post-operative pain. And um, we see that pain both in high-income countries and low- and middle-income countries, but there are some types of pain that are more common in low- and middle-income countries. And examples would be uh, pain uh, caused by HIV AIDS and also pain uh, due to sickle cell disease. Um, and your, your article nicely categorizes um, this pain that you've been talking about into three areas. Number one, cancer and end-of-life pain. Number two, acute pain. And then number three, chronic non-cancer pain. Um, so maybe focusing on these in turn, uh, could you firstly tell us what we know about with regard to cancer pain and pain related to palliative care in this setting, please? Well, it's estimated that 9 million people die as a result of cancer each year. And um, and poorly controlled cancer pain is, is more common in low and middle income countries. There's a lot of reasons for this, but probably two really important reasons are that um, People with cancer in low-resource countries often present late with advanced disease, so they're more likely to have pain because of that. The second reason is that there may be very limited resources for treating that pain when these patients present. Last year, 
there was a report released by the Lancet Commission on Palliative Care and Pain Relief, and uh, they tried to outline the scale of this problem. They estimated that tens of millions of people have what they termed as serious health-related suffering in the world. And uh, they define this as pain and other symptoms in health conditions that are either life-threatening or life-limiting. So we're talking about huge numbers here, and there are a lot of people out there with potentially treatable pain. Yeah, okay. And that's obviously an area that has been fairly highly um, researched. How does that differ from the acute pain setting in those countries? It's interesting for us as anaesthetists because I think we're much more comfortable with acute pain. Mm. But in low and middle income countries, there hasn't been a lot of um, attention paid to acute pain compared to, to treatment of cancer pain and palliative care. And overall, there's, there's a real positive research into, into any sort of pain management in low and middle income countries. But examples of acute pain would include post-operative pain and pain uh, due to trauma. Um, there's also pain due to sickle cell disease, um, pain in childbirth. And um, this sort of fits with some other work which shows that we're not doing enough surgery in low and middle income countries. So recent studies suggest that surgical disease and trauma account for almost 30% of the, the global burden of disease, mm -hmm. but five out of seven billion people don't have access to safe surgical care and anesthesia. So we've got this huge burden of surgical disease and trauma Often when surgery is performed, there's very poor pain relief afterwards. And um, there's also, we, we hope there's going to be an increase in the amount of surgery that's done over the next decade or so. But that's also going to mean that there's going to be a bigger burden of acute surgical pain that needs to be treated. Yeah, indeed. Okay, and your, your article then goes on and it highlights that chronic non-cancer pain has received very little attention um, in the literature and the research. What, what do we currently know about this uh, chronic non-cancer pain? So chronic non-cancer pain is probably just as prevalent in low and middle income countries as it is in high income countries. And the sort of pain we're talking about here is musculoskeletal pain, chronic headache, diabetic neuropathy, and chronic post-surgical pain. Uh, there was a recent um, meta-analysis that was published last year and it found a similar prevalence of chronic non-cancer pain in low and middle income countries to high income countries. This, this pain is difficult to treat in our relatively highly resourced environments, but where resources are short, it's, it's often extremely difficult to find treatment for this type of chronic non-cancer pain. Okay, that's great. Um, so moving on to discuss some of the barriers to pain treatment in low middle income countries. Um, I find it interesting from your article to note the concept of pain being the fifth vital sign, uh, that concept being good in low middle income countries, but not so useful in high income countries such as the US. Um, I thought that was a, an interesting observation. Um, when it comes to low middle income countries, your article categorizes low prioritization coupled with poor access as key barriers to the analgesic treatments. Um, so could you tell us just a little bit more about those, please? So starting with low prioritization, uh, pain has been given low priority, both at high level, at WHO and government level, 
as well as grassroots level. And I think over several decades, WHO has really concentrated on um, on trying to reduce the impact of communicable diseases. We're now starting to see a greater uh, attention being paid to non-communicable diseases. But, you know, during the last few decades, there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to, to managing pain. Um, at the grassroots level, I think it can be very difficult um, to, to prioritise pain when you're in a very under-resourced ward. And I remember visiting a ward in the Solomon Islands where there were 40 patients and a couple of nurses trying to, to look after a lot of post-surgical patients that were seriously ill and they had very limited, um, limited time and ability to actually talk to patients about pain requirements, let alone give them pain medications. Mm. So that's sort of the, the problem with prioritisation. Um, another huge barrier to adequate pain management is poor access to analgesic treatments and in particular poor access to opioid analgesics. Um, the World Health Organization publishes an essential medicines list and this has a number of pain medications on it, um, simple pain medications like aspirin, ibuprofen, morphine uh, and codeine. However, just because a medication is on that essential medicines list doesn't mean that it's going to be available in a low resource setting. Yeah, okay. Um, and I'd definitely urge our um, listeners to have a look at table one, which I think shows um, that uh, model list of essential medications um, that you're, you're talking about. Um, it was great to hear your experiences in the um, Solomon Islands. Um, how much uh, do you feel that cultural behaviour plays a role as a barrier to pain management? Yeah, I, I mean, cultural um, factors are probably even more important than we realise, and they're important both for patients and also healthcare workers. In some cultures, being able to or suffering with pain is actually seen as, as a strength. Uh, and we quote a number of papers in the in our paper, which talks about the expectations about pain relief amongst patients when it comes to surgical pain or pain during childbirth. So for those patients, they may not expect pain relief. Um, they may see it as a as as a sign of strength if they can endure that pain. Um, some of these ideas are also common amongst healthcare workers and. Uh, I think this is often linked with a lack of knowledge about the benefits of treating pain and also a lack of understanding about some of the, the pain treatment options that may, might be available. Um, even in a place with limited resources, very simple treatments can make a huge difference and staff may not know some of these strategies. Yeah. So those of us who have had some experience working in low middle income countries will be aware of some of the myths surrounding opioids. And your article signposts the readers some really interesting maps that illustrate global opioid usage. Um, with that in mind, could you explain what is meant by and how the so-called opioid access abyss has arisen? I think the opioid access abyss term came from the Lancet Commission on Palliative Care and um, Pain Relief. Mm -hmm. And it basically just describes the gap between the opioids that could or should be used for treating pain in some of these countries and what is actually available. 
So in the United States, uh, there is a group called the Pain and Policy Studies Group, which is based at the University of Wisconsin, and they, they're doing a lot of really good work trying to improve opioid availability in low- and middle-income countries. And uh, it's very interesting to visit their website, and it's possible to look at opioid consumption in all countries around the world and, and compare the consumption from one country to another. So we've we've reproduced some of that information in a couple of, of graphs. But one graph shows that Canada had a total opioid consumption of over 800 milligrams per person in 2015, compared to 0.02 milligrams per person in Nigeria. And if you calculate that out, it's, it's over a 42,000-fold difference. And the tragedy is that in Nigeria, there's still lots of people with pain. In fact, there's probably a greater burden of painful disease in Nigeria, but there's little or no opioid available. And that's particularly sad because um, we know that medication like morphine is a fantastic medication in cancer pain and also many types of acute pain. So that's really um, a staggering uh comparison like you say from Canada and Nigeria um, I guess the question is that discrepancy in access to opioids against the burden of disease whose problem is that who's accountable is it a problem for the Nigerian government for the Canadian government or is it overseen by the uh, WHO because I guess we all have a, a moral responsibility to even the playing field I suppose yeah I well I think it's it's a it's a problem where in some countries probably um, there is too much opioid use and some of it's inappropriate and in other countries the opioids simply aren't available when they should be available to treat cancer and, and acute pain. Mm. It's estimated that over 90% of the world's opioids are consumed in a small group of rich countries accounting for less than 20% of the global population and um, there's been a lot of media play recently about the number of people dying in the United States because of opioid overdose. Um, yeah. There's one figure recently that suggested that something like uh, 140 people were dying per day uh, as a result of opioid overdose. And there's concern in North America that uh, there's a lot of opioids being prescribed inappropriately and sometimes in cases of chronic non-cancer pain. Um, this highlights the need for us to not only be working to increase access to opioids in some countries, but also just to make sure that people are prescribing them appropriately. And uh, it's interesting that in the United States, there was a suggestion recently that we should stop talking about pain as the fifth vital sign, because some people thought this could be contributing to overprescription of opioids. Mm -hmm. But, of course, on the other side of the coin, we've got this terrible situation in many countries that uh, have very limited resources where little or no opioid is available. Yeah. And there are multiple factors for this, uh, multiple reasons for this. Um, international controls are a big part of this. So, on the one hand, we've got countries that are, are trying to 
prevent misuse of opioids and diversion of opioids and there are strict international controls to try and prevent this happening but they can add to the barriers that make um, availability of opioids very limited. Yeah that's very it's very interesting and I guess that's part of the work being done on non-communicable diseases. I mean I don't know the numbers myself but it seems analogous to the the gap and the divide between all the diseases related to smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and sort of you know the general excesses of the high-income countries versus the um, malnutrition and related illnesses um, to those. But perhaps something that, well, certainly myself and maybe a lot of us haven't thought about in in relation to pain. So yeah, those are some staggering statistics and numbers, and definitely something to uh, to think about. So we've we discussed some of the barriers. Um, I think it made sense to move on to some of the strategies for providing solutions to these problems that we've discussed. Um, and your article outlines these as three interdependent um, factors, namely number one, advocacy, number two, improving treatment availability, and number three, um, education. And perhaps we could start just by um, a comment on the first two of those, please, uh, advocacy and improving treatment availability. So advocacy is really important, both at high level and also at the grassroots level. And I think there is some progress being made at the high level. Um, during the last year or two, there's been a couple of really important assembly resolutions. One was uh, a resolution on improving anaesthesia and surgical care, which, which talked about improving pain management. And there was also another important resolution on improving palliative care. And these resolutions both called on member states to improve pain management. So there is an increasing recognition of the need to improve pain management at that high level. But I think it's really important for us to be also advocating for better pain management for our patients at the bedside. And this is, this is really where education and understanding of the benefits of pain management come into the picture. Mm. Um, you mentioned also, Benj, about improving treatment availability. Um, a lot of the efforts have focused on improving um, more of improving opioid availability. So we've got organisations like the Pain and Policy Studies Group at the University of Wisconsin that are doing great work. There are also organisations like the International Association for the Study of Pain and the WHO is also trying to help governments achieve the balance between adequate supply of opioids but also making sure that uh, the, the governments are reducing the risk of inappropriate use and also diversion of these medications. So there's some, some really good work going on there. Okay, that's great. Um, thanks very much. I mean, these are very broad topics and we could discuss these for, for hours. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't have the time. One of the things that I did like about your article is it nicely signposted to a number of um, free resources, some of you have mentioned um, already. Uh, maybe we can turn our attention to the teaching and uh, education side. In your educational role as a co-author of the Essential Pain Management course, could you give us a little bit of insight into how courses like these are trying to solve the educational issues? 
So there are some there's some great online um, resources, and I certainly, when I started getting involved in um, pain management education, I didn't know a lot about um, chronic pain or, or cancer pain. So one resource that I think is great is the Palliative Care Toolkit, which is um, produced by the Worldwide Hospice Palliative Care Alliance. Um, there's also a free resource which is available on the um, International Association for the Study of Pains website, which is called A Guide to Pain Management in Low Resource Settings. And another resource that's um, very useful is the Australian and the New Zealand College of Anaesthetists um, publication, Acute Pain Management Scientific Evidence. So I'm sure there are many, many other fantastic online resources, but these are just a few that I've found very helpful. Mm-hmm. I got involved with pain management uh, education uh, about eight years ago when I co-wrote a course called the Essential Pain Management Course, and uh, my co-author um, was or is Roger Gook, who's a pain management physician uh, based in Perth, Western Australia. And we started with the idea that it would be good to have a multidisciplinary, simple pain management course that um, was designed to meet the needs of people working in low-resource settings. Mm-hmm. So we trialled the course in Papua New Guinea, and um, that was in 2010. And since then, the course has been taught in over 50 countries worldwide and translated into seven languages. Wow. It's also being taught in um, a number of high-income countries, and I understand that the course has now been taught in um, 18 medical schools in the United Kingdom. So the idea is that it just brings people from different disciplines to, together. Uh, it gets people thinking about the benefits of, of treating pain, also some of the barriers, and also both non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments. Um, we use a, a very simple educational tool, which is just uh, RAT, RAT, which stands for Recognize, Assess, Treat. And we use a whole lot of case discussions during the workshop, and we find that people really respond to that, that style of education. That sounds, um, it sounds absolutely fascinating and an amazing, amazing course, and it's done, done so well. So I guess we, we'd normally finish just by asking if you have any final take-home messages for our listeners, please. So inadequate pain management is is a is a major global healthcare problem, and you know I think it's staggering that 80% of the world's population doesn't have access to treatment for moderate or severe pain. And um, I think as anaesthetists, it's good for us to be thinking not only about acute pain, but cancer and end of life pain, and also chronic non-cancer pain. And there are a lot of fairly simple things that we can do to really improve pain management in in many low-resource settings. Um, For me, education is a really central part of the solution. We've got to try and um, provide some strategies for people who are at the coalface. We also need to be educating people higher up about the importance of treating pain. So I think there is hope. Um, There is lots and lots of opportunities to improve pain management and um, you know slowly but surely we are making progress in in many areas that's really great this as i said before this is a colossal topic so thanks for helping us navigate it and make some sense of it all Um, thank you very much Wayne morris that was a great podcast and thanks for taking the time to join us today thanks very much Benj. pleasure
So thanks again to Wayne for that interesting discussion on pain in low and middle income countries. Uh, please join us next month where Cliff will be talking to Dr. Amit Power on his article on abdominal wall blocks. As always, we welcome your feedback that you can leave through the website and please follow us on Twitter at BJA Journals for all the latest updates. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.